0: This week on Writers Inc. For me, it's it's all the same. Whether it's a book I'm reading, or a film I'm watching, or the old guy down at the uh, at the bar going, "Let me tell you what happened one time." It's all what I call capital S story. It's all the same. The language is different. The tropes can be different, but really. I always equate it to building a house with your story as your foundation. And then every time you sort of go through, your first draft is throwing up framing and your second draft is putting up drywall. And when you get to the point where you're just adjusting picture frames, you're you're kind of done. So for me, film, books, poetry, it's all means to an end of imparting an experience that hopefully resonates with not only me, me the reader, but also other people that are reading that stuff as well jk rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first harry potter book stephen king penned carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer james patterson worked in advertising
1: and famously crafted the toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author join new york times bestseller jd barker and indie powerhouses jay thorne and zach bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors where do they start what is their process the biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name?
2: Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers Inc. Well happy New Year gang. Uh, I know uh, the gang isn't all here. Zach is on uh, on the road on his vacation, so he's not with us today, but uh, it is January 2nd as you're listening to this. So happy New Year, Happy New Year, Christine J.D. how you guys doing?
1: I'm actually waiting like you got caught in snow, right? Like you had to leave. Did, did you actually get caught in that storm?
2: I didn't. I didn't get caught, but we ended up leaving two days later than we wanted to because I had a flat tire.
1: Oh, man. Like I, I'm in New England. I've been expecting snow this whole time and we have gotten nothing but rain. Oh, but it's it's cold. It's, it's crazy cold out like it, it was. I think this morning when I got up, it was like five degrees, um, but like nothing but rain. It like it warms up just enough or it just it doesn't freeze into snow. Um. So yeah, I'm a little bit sad about that. Your car broke down. That's the worst. Like right, you know, on a holiday trip. Yeah,
2: I mean, we were going to leave on. Th- we were going to leave ahead of the storm as it was hitting last week, and then uh, ended up with you know a flat tire, and so it delayed us until Christmas Day. Um, and you know, th- like Christine will attest, uh, cars are always <laughs> an issue. They always take three times as long to fix as you think they will, right? And
3: uh, they do. Yeah. Yeah. We. I, I was just telling Jay uh, earlier. My car broke down yesterday in my garage. It just uh, was dead. <laughs> and I tried to jump it. Um, couldn't get it to jump. I had to call a tow truck. Tow truck took three hours. <laughs> and uh, they did get a jump, but he wasn't sure if it was a very dead battery or the alternator. So now it's in the shop. They don't have the parts. And I'm supposed to leave to go to the airport literally in an hour. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to hitch a ride and just not worry about that because I'm like, that's fine.
1: Parts are a real issue right now. Did I tell you guys what I did to my, my, my challenger? No. No oh yeah this, this is this is bad and i probably shouldn't talk about this on the air but um so my wife and i we had she had a propane tank in the back of her jeep and we were both kind of running around town um and she said well can you meet me over at the jeep dealership because i'm getting some she was getting something done with her tires there and like pick up the propane tank and get it filled so i'm like okay i'm right down the street from there so i, I pull into that parking lot and i left the the challenger running and it's a manual transmission so like i had to put it into neutral and i it's got a push pedal emergency brake so i i keyed that in but like i I didn't shut the car down. Um, jumped out really quick, and she was parked maybe, I don't know, 50 feet from where I had stopped, like in their parking lot. So I left my door open and I ran over to her Jeep. I got the propane tank out, turned back around, and my car wasn't there anymore. <laughs> oh, no. So my first thought was crap, somebody just stole my car out of the, the Jeep dealership parking lot. Um, but then I saw people pointing at the trees at the edge of the parking oh. lot. <laughs> so I start following where they're pointing and I walk over there. And apparently, like, I mean, I know I pushed the emergency brake in, but with the car in neutral, like, the car weighs like forty five hundred pounds. It's heavy, so like it apparently it started rolling like really slow, and then it just it picked up speed and picked up speed, and it dropped off the edge of their parking lot backwards, and like went off a little bit of a, a cliff that was maybe I mean not not it was super steep, but dropped about 15 feet and it got caught in a tree. Um, <laughs> so they, and it was running the whole time. So they, they had to tow it out. Um, and it, it didn't do a whole lot of damage. It dinged up like the trunk. Like there's, a, you know, it looks like I hit a tree, you know, in the, in the back <laughs> of the car, um, trashed the the light on that side and stuff like that. But they told me it's six to eight months for the parts to come in. Oh. Um, and I don't have collision insurance on the car because I, I flat out own it for cash and like, I rarely drive it. So I just didn't make sense to, to have it, but like it's an $8,500 repair. Really? Um, and it's a, you know, it's a decent Car. So it's like, I'm going to do it because it's the car is still worth
2: more. But like, it just total stupidity. So, oh, yeah. That, that's the problem with cars these days is like, if it's beyond, say, you know, like a flat tire or, or something simple like that, it's thousands of dollars in repairs, all, no matter what it is, no matter how insignificant it looks or, or you think it is. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm going to pick up collision on it. I mean,
1: it's probably stupid to not have it, but it's
2: just I don't drive
1: it that much. And I like could it just, it, you know, when you go down to your finances, it's just one of those things like why pay for that if you never use it? Because I, I haven't wrecked before, you know, so it's like I've never had to use it before. But like the one time I don't have it on the car, I do that. So...
2: Did the Jeep dealer try uh, try try and sell you a Jeep, like you know, if you've been driving a Jeep, that thing wouldn't a, wouldn't let go. <laughs> they they offered to buy it, and they keep
1: offering to buy my wife's Jeep too, because um, apparently there's a huge shortage right now on just on vehicles in general. Um, yeah. I, I, from what I'm reading, it sounds like that's clearing up, but it was a COVID thing. So like they you know used vehicles, especially the ones that hold value, like Jeep Wranglers, like they don't seem to go down in value. They just sort of sit there, um, and they've been trying to buy that back from her forever. But we we like it. It's our little four wheel drive for when we actually do get snow. Yeah, yeah, these
3: car prices are, are crazy right now. I can't believe how much they're asking for them. And there's um like months delay on getting new cars a lot of the time. So, yeah, because we like I need a new car, but I'm like in this market, I'm just kind of delaying as long as I can. So hopefully that does clear up.
1: Cool. What else is going on with you guys?
2: Well, I hmm. got a, uh, as you guys are listening to this in real time, I'm, I'm sort of doing a, you uh, an appreciation for my platform for, for the past 10 years or so. On my blog, I'm doing something called Your Creative Journey, which is a 180-day uh, journaling exercise. and It's completely free. And when I, when I say free, I mean you don't even need to put in your email address. If you just go to authorlife.com and click on blog starting today, Um, every day there'll be a post there and, uh, it's going to cover six months and and each month has a theme. So, you know, there's like, you know, physical health and, um, relationships, creativity, time management, just a lot of things that authors I know, uh, including myself struggle with. And, uh, so I'm really excited for that. It's, it's the, it's sort of the first publication I've done in a while and, um, yeah, it's, it's available today. So hopefully people can check it out.
1: Cool. What about you, Christine? What are you working on?
3: Just slowly working on my launch for my uh pen named co authored series. So that's mostly what I've been doing and you know getting excited to see that out in January.
1: I'm trying to wrap edits on that book, the one that I wrote off the outline. Um going going pretty smooth. I mean I, I basically followed the outline for the most part through the whole thing. Um, there's one storyline that I threw in there that, you know, I, I really love, but like it really doesn't need to be in the book. Um, and it kind of over, over complicates things. And the, the final book was one, I think, 126,000 um, total words. So I'm, I'm stripping that storyline out, um, which kind of hurts because, I, you know, I, I just I liked it. But, you know, again, it just doesn't need to be in there. Um, so I think the final book is going to end up around 110,000. And I'm, I'm hoping to turn that one over to my agent, um, to hopefully sometime early January then move on to the next one.
2: Nice. Yeah can you can you save those and, and, and repackage them as like a, you know a short story or a, a short novella? like a, I, as a I might
1: like I, I basically I came up with a really cool way to, to launder money and steal identities. Um, But it just, it had nothing to do with my, my original storyline. It was just basically something like I found, I had to explain something. I was like, well, maybe they're doing this. And then I stumbled into something and I don't want to give away what it was, but like, it was a really cool thing that, you know, I I found on a money laundering website. It was actually one of the government websites. I I still, you know, having coming out of the the finance industry, like I'm still on a bunch of newsletters that I used to get back then. And they're fun to read because you get to read what people are actually doing to, to launder money and where they're doing it and stuff like that. And, you know, most criminals are stupid, but the financial ones, they, they tend to, you know, raise the bar a little bit so it's entertaining reads um, so yeah I'll probably do something with it I mean it could honestly I could probably spin it into a standalone thriller um, at some point if I want to do something like that but we'll see but I usually put those all in a folder somewhere tell myself I'm gonna use it and then I never look at that folder again
2: yeah yeah I know the feeling <laughs> yeah. I, I also know this is uh, this week is, is really slow in the publishing industry so uh, don't really expect any news but if you guys come across anything happening this week
1: no, I just, I checked on Harper Collins. I mean, they're on day 48 at this point on their, their strike. Um, there are people working, um, but you know, they're basically picking up the workload for everybody that isn't. Um, I feel horrible for, you know, people on both sides of that. You know, obviously if you if you have to go into the office, you know, they've got families to support. Like some people just can't not do it. They have to get that paycheck. Um, and for the people that are on the picket line, it's, you know, things are just as bad. You know, a lot of them have families too, and they've got no paycheck coming in at this point. Um, you know, with the holidays here, nobody is working to resolve this. Um, So they're in limbo for the next couple of weeks. That's 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 going to be brutal. But I'm hoping we're going to see something, you know, first or second week of January and we can move beyond this. Um, Aside from that, I didn't I didn't see a whole lot. I was actually out this morning just building a chicken coop for my daughter. So I'm like totally on publishing related stuff.
2: I don't think you're allowed to keep her in that. I'm just,
1: <laughs> <laughs> probably not, but that's probably, something. I could hold that over her head though. Like that's where you're going. If you keep doing what, whatever the no, knowing the uh, kid, knowing kids should be like,
2: you should be all for it. Right.
1: <laughs> well, she, she's been after us to get a pet, you know, as every kid does. And, you know, we've got this really nice house that we just finished a renovation on. And like, you know, I, I've had dogs, I've had cats and like, they all make a mess of everything. Um, so like the idea of any of those things entering this house after we just finished it, like made me all twitchy. Um, and she, for whatever reason, just, like zeroed in on chickens she's like i want chickens um and there's a certain type and the name is escaping me at this point but it doesn't even look like a chicken it's like really frilly it reminds me of gizmo from the the gremlins um but that's um that's what she's getting um so the coop arrived this morning i had to build a foundation to put it on because nothing is level in our backyard um but it's blocking the view to the cemetery that's right behind us which is kind of nice you know i get to look at live chickens instead of you know people that were buried in the
2: 1800s Well, there's no no coop building happening at my place. I'm sure it's not happening at Christine's either.
3: No, no chicken coops. Just one uh, (laughs) old and and kind of cranky cat. That's all.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, cool. Um, So, yeah, let's get to the interview. Who do we got on on deck uh, today, J.D.?
1: we've got tom carnell so he's a horror author he's best known for his short stories he's been featured in a lot of publications um like fangoria dread central his latest book is called horror book uh, and released earlier this year so here he is tom carnell
2: can you tell me what the uh, modern submission guidelines are for swank magazine
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know it, at the time that i submitted to swank they king stephen king was saying like oh yeah this is an untapped market like men's magazines and i thought hey, it's good enough for king it's good enough for me um and i ended up getting a lot of really great uh, rejection slips like hustlers busty beauties i had one from them that i've kept forever um but i sold it and it was it was great they they did a really nice illustration they paid me 600 bucks so Nice. That was back in the day when the, nice. when you could do that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah, that's yeah. cool. I've
2: heard that to men's magazine. I don't know anything about it. I just I just heard.
0: It was one of those, like, yeah, it's one of those things, like, you'll find now, like, wrapped in plastic behind the counter in the 7-Eleven.
2: Yeah, but, you know, in all seriousness, like, when I was doing uh, some research on you, I went back and looked, and, like, Back in the day, Swank had some serious literary chops. I mean, yeah. I couldn't believe that magazine started like I think the first iteration was like in the 40s or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was always it was all of those like Gent, and Nugget, and Cavalier, and Wee magazine and all those all those great things. And they were always consistently putting out great fiction, and so I thought You know, hey, back, but then again, back in that day, it it was like the naivete, right? Of just like, I could do this. Yeah. (laughs) I'll submit in the same place that Isaac Asimov has.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Thanks to the internet coming along and killing men's magazines. So there you go. I know. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, uh, you, you, before we, before we started recording, you were talking about getting back into some movies and films. You, mm. you have one of these, um, projects that, uh, I'm absolutely fascinated by. Can, can you talk a little bit about your 365 films and 365 days uh, initiative?
0: Yeah. For two years, it was actually the 366 and 365. Um, it was just a matter of, I watch a lot of, I watch a lot of film, like ridiculous amounts of film, like three to four a day. So it was just, you know, I was and on social media. Now I'll constantly put up my thoughts as it's happening, sort of live tweeting. Um, But it was just an opportunity where I would get with the, I'm using air quotes again, film literate and going, Oh, have you ever seen this? And so many people were going like, no, I've never, ever even heard of that. It's like, well, okay. So I, I put, my whole website really is just like a resource. It's like, I've done the time watching this this horrible film and here's a way to either steer you towards that if that's what you want or steer you away from it if it's not what you want. Um, And it was, again, it was an opportunity. I've still been working on a book of all of that stuff, like a gigantic review book, Um, but it always gets pushed aside for other things, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, you you have a, you have a long history in writing and publishing and, uh, with, with many publications under your belt. And one Mm. of the criticisms that I hear when I deal with, uh, when I do some client work is that, well, you know, studying film, it's, it's a different medium than, than say writing a short story or a novel. So what do you get out of film analysis that then transfers Mm. over to your literary works?
0: For me, it's, it's all the same, whether it's, a book I'm reading, or a film I'm watching, or the old guy down at the uh, at the bar going, "Let me tell you what happened one time." It's all what I call capital S story. Uh, I grew up sitting at my grandfather's knees. He would tell me stories, and it was all, it's all the same. The language is different. the 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 tropes can be different, but really. I always equate it to building a house with your story as your foundation. And then every time you sort of go through, your first draft is throwing up framing and your second draft is putting up drywall. And when you get to the point where you're just adjusting picture frames, you're kind of done. So for me, film, books, poetry, it's all means to an end of imparting an experience that hopefully resonates with not only Me, me the reader but also other people that are reading that stuff as well yeah so for me it's all the same it's all you know it's it's all this one time at band camp right (laughs) you're like yeah yeah tell me that i want to know more about that you know um and i've always said that writers are just elaborate liars and the more elaborate our lie the more it's easier the more easier it is to believe it. And so it's all for me, the language of lying <laughs> in a weird way, but yeah,
2: I, I get it. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. yeah telling lies for a living. There's nothing better, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, if you would have talked to the 12 year old Tom and said, this is what you're going to be doing at one point in your life, it'd be like, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> but here we
2: are. Well, let's bridge that gap a little bit between the 12 year old Tom and, and where we are now. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your experience uh, with working with the dead, which I say is sort of tongue-in-cheek.
0: Yeah, no, um, I, I had... Have- Gotten out of high school and went to work for music stores. I worked for I was a buyer for Tower for many many years. Met my wife there. Worked for a ton of record stores. Um, but around the time I got married, it was like oh, this isn't going to cut it. You know, we 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 had plans for children and all this other stuff. So I needed to do something to do. Um, when I was 15, uh, we lost a lot of people, like seven or eight people in in a year in my family, through age or whatever. Um, And I always remember that the funeral director that we met with his role was sort of, it seems really noble to me. Like you're, you're helping people at their absolute worst. Um, So I came home with hair down at the middle of my back and told my wife, I'm going to mortuary college and, and did uh, graduate the San Francisco college of mortuary science. Um, I got, I, I passed, you know, a lot of the exams that we had to do. I was a certified eye and nucleus, meaning that I would go out in the middle of the night and remove eyeballs from people for cornea transplants. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, what I didn't count, I thought it would be something that I could do in a way I could, could provide for my family. What it ended up doing was opening up this whole other world for me about that there's a beauty in all of it. And there's a, there's a um there's a place there that we can find great comfort. Um and it's something that it's immediately it's something that is going to affect everyone. It's not someone something that we can we can talk about. It's like not the gay experience, it's not the trans experience, it's not the white experience, it's not this experience or that's where everyone su- either suffers a death in their family or they themselves die. So it became this really rich um ground to sort of, if not till, but at least look around and and be invited inside of, I, I worked at a place in San Diego that uh, as an arranger, I would have meetings at nine, 10, one, three, and five o'clock at night. So every day you would walk into six or seven intense situations where someone had just lost someone very dear to them. And you're having to be compassionate to that and then, and hear their story but also get the job done because you know papers things need to be signed and that kind of thing um i consider that time in my life really lucky because it was it was a way i had an old friend of mine bob Yount who was the dean of students who uh, is now a musician and his dad wrote the theme to green acres um yes. but he he said that it's 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 this great privilege that we're given um that most people don't get and it and if you if you do get a peek behind the veil it'll change your life and it then it did um just everything from seeing you know the familial dynamic of people arguing over money and like that being weird but also understanding that other everyone processes this stuff different and that's really helped as far as writing goes
2: Yeah, it must have really sharpened your sense of empathy and and really allowed you to connect with people and their stories in a way that otherwise wouldn't have been possible.
0: Yeah, it was a given that I would come home from work and I'd come into my office here and shut the door and then cry for a half hour (laughs) and then just sort of get it all off. And it was, in fact, the day I came home and didn't do that, that my wife pulled me aside and said, like, we should probably talk (laughs) because you're becoming either hardened to it or... or what have you and that she knew that's not where I wanted to be. So um yeah, I quit, walked out of that, went to work for sleep in sleep for a long time. So
2: wow, so uh, how did you end up uh working and or writing for Fangoria and Dread Central and some of these other uh publications?
0: Oh, Around that time, um, I had been going to Fangocons forever and just bothering Tony Timpone about stuff. And there, it was there that I met people like Chaz Ballen and and all of these these other people that, little by little, I was sort of working in that periphery around the mid 90s, my wife and I started Carpanoctum, which was sort of a, we called it a dark art publication. But when you look at it, it's, it's pretty goth. <laughs> I'll say that it was pretty goth, um, but that got me to, because I was in charge of all the text in the in the book, who do you want to interview? I'd be like, let's interview Tony Timpone. And so we did that. Then when Carpenachton went away, I just asked Tony like, hey, do you have a place for me? And he said yes, and I worked there for a good long time. Um, and that was great. All of that afforded me this other part of the learning and that was sitting at the knee of people, again, just like my grandfather, but sitting at the knee of people who could who were really great. You know, um, I had one comes to mind I had an interview with Neil Gaiman scheduled for an hour and he began by saying, Let me tell you about writing and <laughs> talked for three hours. Wow. And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, like watching the tape just spin. And those kind of opportunities are are um or you can't buy that kind of stuff. When someone who's really good at what they're doing wants to share that perspective with you, you need to be there with like a biscuit, just laughing that up because, (laughs) because it's, it's, if nothing else, they won't give you where to put the comma, but they definitely will let you in on the, on the mindset. You know, this isn't just something magical. This is a job and you need to do it daily and you need to apply these things and then you have to put on your little barker hat and get out there and um, you know do the ballyhoo to get people to to read it because these days the real hard part is being heard above the din right everyone's yeah. able to do it themselves um, there used to be a gatekeeping progress a uh, process for good or for will of slush piles and editors and people like that um, but these days anyone can do anything. As I like to say, the good news is anyone could publish a book. The bad news is anyone (laughs) could publish a book. So, you know, you get a lot of skewing of standards and because there's no one there to say no, you know, and, and for me, that's where the learning begins. Like if I come up with some cockamamie idea and someone says, no, it's like, well, explain to me why, then that'll help me learn to try to figure it out. And I can pick and choose over that, whether it's something I want to bring into my personal mythology or do you want me just to just reject it out of hand? So, you know.
2: Yeah. Do you have a, a dog in the fight of the, uh, the indie path versus the traditional path?
0: Um, it's all hard. I mean, I'm with crossroad press and crossroad is great, but a lot of the promotion of that falls onto the author to, to get out there and beat the brush and talk to find people that are doing podcasts like yourself and, and like, just try to get the word out, you know, short of dousing yourself with gas, (laughs) lighting yourself on fire. Um, I, I see great things out of out of indies, people that are willing to take chances. Um, I talk a lot about, you know, to to young writers. I'll tell them like, odds are, you're not going to make a million dollars doing this. So you should really feed you, you know, swing for the fences, because why not, you know, you can worry about pulling it back later but like be brave now because there's no one that's going to stop you I've had I've put stories in some of my collections that there's no way that they would ever have passed muster Um, um so uh at least at the end of the day I could go that was everything I put in that book it's my best at the time and you know and just go with it and realize that it may not bounce well in a few years or what have you but um i think it's all about being honest with the people that have that have been kind enough to pick up your book to even leaf through it you know um because i think audiences are smart and they can tell when you're lying and you're bullshitting um and you have to respect that um uh otherwise they'll they'll let you know.
2: <laughs> yes they will one way or another, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, I, Which is know, great. I love those bad reviews. I love when people yeah. will say like this didn't work for me because then it's like okay, good to know.
2: As long as the bad review isn't I ordered this on Tuesday and Amazon said it would be here Thursday <laughs> and it's still not here. One star.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, or or just personal gripes, you know. I yeah. I don't I ran into a lot of pushback on the first novel because there's a lot of cussing in it um, because every I've trained martial arts for years. Every fighter I've ever known cusses like a sailor. And so I just thought, okay. It took time for me to realize that the way it hits the, the way the F word hits the ear and the way it hits the eye can be very, very different. You know, in, in your ear, it just becomes a what I call a helper word. Um, in fact, when we were doing the audiobook for the first book, No Flesh I'll Be Spared, I got a bunch of audition tapes from different readers and I had to have real conversations about how to use the F word, you know, like, you don't wind up on it so much. It's just, it's like, ah. Uh, you know, and so having done that, it created some really great some of those tapes are just awesome. <laughs> <laughs> They're just awesome.
2: Nice keepsakes.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We just I just got a great one from the new book, Tuxedo Junction, they were doing a, a audiobook of that uh and the guy's very austere. Um I wanted for no flesh, I always heard a buddy of mine, Neil Kaplan, who does the voice for Tychus Finley, if you know StarCraft 2. Um, but he's got he's got this gruff gravelly, you know, it's about damn time kind of voice and I'm like, "Oh, I want that so bad, but it didn't work out." But Yeah. <laughs> they, nice.
2: I got a uh, I got something I want to read to you and I know <clears> there's a story behind this and I can't wait to hear it. This is uh this is this is the quote. "No one has done more for legitimizing the beauty of the horror genre than Tom Carnell." Yeah. And that was spoken by Mr. Clive Barker. Tell us about that. Yes.
0: Clive Uh, it became a thing when I was working for Fango that every year I would just interview Clive. Um, He was doing a a book on, um, it was an art book and going to his house and and going into the, the studio room where it was four gigantic rooms, all lined with paintings side by side, just completely around the four rooms. And you think, wow. And then when I got closer, I looked and each painting was, the front of a pile of 10 or 15 paintings oh. all the way around the room. So um, that's how that friendship sort of happened. Uh, we were doing an interview at one point and I we had talked about the beauty of, even within the most horrible things you can describe, there's, there's always beauty in there. And then he said that, and I was like, oh, uh, that would look great on my press kit. It's yours if you want it. So I, I, I happily took that. Yeah. Um, uh, But he was another one of those guys that showed that you could be, it's all in the same. The painter is the same as the the writer and as the sculptor and that we're all doing, working in the same field. It's just that our, our toys are different.
2: Yeah. So I, I I think Josh Mallerman's another example, you know, he's a, a, a musician uh, and, and a writer and a novelist. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's all tapping the same source.
0: Well, it's amazing how many people are. Greg Spector is a musician. Our Richard Christian Matheson is a great drummer and, you know, all these people that are, that are finding, it's all communicating, right? It's whether it's through song or through text or, or, you know, or what have you.
2: Yeah. We're always really curious about process. So can you, can you tell us, uh, you know, um, what, what is your writing process? Do you write at a certain time of the day in a certain place, uh, daily binge? H- how, how do you do it?
0: Um, I, I have a schedule. So in the morning, I kind of copied this from Caitlin Kiernan. Um, in the morning, I, I look at yesterday's words and go through them and edit them and what have you afternoon after lunch is when new words get generated because I'm going to look at them the following day. Um, Choosing what to write about really—it's—it's it's odd. It all starts with a with a, what I call a puzzler. Um, can you write something and change everything with just, with the last line? Um, uh, can you? Um, uh, in the first collection, there's a story called Clown Town, and the idea there was, I, it just came to me where someone pointed in in a clown suit said, "Listen, clown," <laughs> and that that started me thinking like, well, how how do we make that work? And and that brought us to a, the end result, which was a world where social structure is dictated by what kind of clown you are, um, set in a sort of. Agatha Christie-esque dining room mystery of the, you know, like Knives Out where the detective goes from group to group to group. And by the time he gets all the way around the room, he solved the mystery and what have you. So it always something that usually makes me laugh um, um, or or somehow sparks an imagination. I, I thought at one point, what if a child was born with a Midas touch that every time it touched something, it didn't turn it to gold, it just killed it. And how would that person grow up? And so we sort of built from there. So it's usually something that when I think about it, I just kind of chuckle to myself and I think that's crazy. Um, But then it doesn't let go. And then I start sort of putting the screws to this ridiculous idea and saying, okay, given this ridiculous idea, how do we make this work? How do we, how do we ground it in reality? How do we, I get caught up in that a lot. There's in the zombie books, there's a lot of fighting and those fight all that fight stuff really works. <laughs> so I, I drag friends in and training partners, and I just need you to stand here and do this and then sort of work it all out. Um, uh, usually I write longhand first draft, and then once that it, it feels like automatic writing in a weird way where I sort of disengage and just start moving. Um, then once it's in and once I have it printed out, then I start going through it. And again, it's building the house. It's putting up drywall and putting in the the toilets and making sure everything works. And, and then, um, uh, I usually keep to three passes, three or four passes, five, if it's in trouble. Um, uh, and I've got a great beta reader who I trust implicitly, a girl named Heather that, is awesome she'll look me dead in the eye and go this doesn't work (laughs) you need those you need those and i cherish her because she'll do that i would rather hear what doesn't work than hear what does work because i can blow smoke at my own dress i don't need you to do that for me what i need you to do is tell me like that the dress doesn't fit or (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah but it's always different i've tried things. I just did something into um, the new thing I'm working on that I just delivered. It's called just called horror book, uh, where um, I just started tape and just started talking, Um, and that seemed to work out for that story. Um, It had to do with an interrogation, so it just made sense to just sit here and and. do it that way as opposed to trying to map it all out just let it go and then we can add stuff you know keep on stuff later nice yeah yeah
2: it's fascinating thanks man thanks for yeah, sharing that with us yeah no problem yeah um we we like to kind of pull all the conversations to close in 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 a similar way so this is a kind of a fun question you can take it wherever you want to go but uh hmm. this is these are these are uh, very crazy times right now things are are changing really fast uh, where do you think the publishing industry is going? What's, what's on the horizon mm. for us?
0: Uh, well, I think that, um, I'm thinking about that for a second. Um, I think that ultimately it's for our benefit. The more that there's out there, the more that people are able to spark their imagination and, and maybe hopefully it, it inspires them to do their own stuff. Um, uh selling i think that i think amazon is kind of where it's going to be some some central clearinghouse for us all um uh i'm optimistic because i think that tough times have always brought sparked really great literature um if only just as a ways for the writer to deal with it you know they, they i can't say this in real life but i can certainly say it here. Um, but I'm excited. I think that once we, you know, with the days of Patreon and this kind of stuff where you can actually get help, you know, it's not just you working in some crummy job just to make ends meet so you can do what's really important to you. And that's the work. It's able, people are able to and, and seem to be excited about being a part of that process of uh, watching, you know. I, I follow a lot of people on Patreon, like people like Chet Sar and these kind of people where they're 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 so free with what they're doing. They're like, look at this. There's here's the initial sketch, and this is how this is gonna work out. And it's it's great because I think it also helps the, the person watching to understand it's not a magic trick. It's not Just, I walk up to a painting and I swirl some paint around and there's the Mona Lisa. It's like, no, it's work. And it's, it's a job. Um, It's why I get so infuriated when I hear about people talking about, oh, my character spoke to me and my character demanded that this happen. It's like, no, you're in charge. Like, it's your, you know, I get that. There are things that you, that the character will and won't do, but you're in the driver's seat and you should take ownership of that and for make it, you know, forge it to your will. Um that said, there's always those times when you sit down in one whack. Um, I did a story called When I Fall in Love, It Will Be Forever. Um, that came out in one whack. Literally sat here for two hours typing it all out, just weeping. just I cry a lot, just crying as I was I was typing it. But you know, there's a there's a connection and there's an emotionality there that I think holds true. You know,
2: there are so many ways I can go with this <laughs> with this <laughs> questioning of you guys. What an interesting character Tom was, uh, JD. Back in the day, were you submitting to Swank magazine?
1: <laughs> Not Swank, but I actually have a story about Playboy. Um, so they, these magazines actually paid really well. Um, and you know, any guy who's actually got a Playboy, anybody's actually looked at one, like they actually had legit stories and articles and things in there. It wasn't just pretty pictures. Um, and they, they, you know, because of the, the rest of the, you know, they, they made so much money, they were able to pay good. So Play, Playboy at one point was paying around $2 a word for, uh, fiction. Um, so I wrote a story, they agreed to the, the premise of it. I, I knocked it out. It was 2,700 words. Um, and I finished it and. Went out to lunch or uh, and when I came home, somebody had broken into my apartment. Um, and they stole the laptop that I had wrote it on oh. and this was this was 1990 so there, there was no backup you know at least not in my world um, they stole that they stole a, a glass head that somebody had bought for me like a, from pier 66 it was basically a glass skull that I just had sitting on the kitchen counter um, the laptop and there was one other thing I can't remember what it was um, but yeah so that was it so I had I basically finished up the story had no backup of it um, fully intended to sell it to Playboy and then it was gone and I just I never bothered after that um, but I know a lot of people who did very well with with all all of those magazines, you know, writing, writing in that world. And, you know, like I I just started subscribing to um, Wired magazine again, and they've got fiction in there, which is kind of neat. So it's, it's a market that, you know, I think if you tapped it back in the day, you definitely made some money and, you know, it's, it's moved on to other
2: publications too. Yeah. Um, I know. Um, Christine, a few years ago, you were, you got sold some pieces, didn't
3: you? To magazines? Uh, yeah, I did. Not to Playboy, although <laughs> Playboy uh, published one of my favorite short stories by Chuck Palahniuk, which was Guts. And if you oh, are not Guts. squeamish and you haven't read that short story, it is phenomenal. Uh, yeah, I've, I've sold a couple of short stories to some pro paying magazines, but just kind of short fiction, which is fun. I haven't done that for a while. Honestly, I haven't written short fiction for quite a few years. I've been really novel, serial fiction focused, but I did enjoy doing it when I did it you know early on
2: yeah yeah well it's it's interesting tom seems to be one of the most diversified authors we've spoken to it seems like he's really got some innovative revenue streams some some channels that he's exploiting that that most people don't uh and it seems like especially with the fangoria stuff i mean getting the clive barker is really cool
1: yeah absolutely i would i would love to see the guy's house you know, I'm like, I've got a nice office, but like, it's not four rooms, <laughs> you know, why, yeah. lined with paintings. I mean, that, that sounds what Clive Barker's office would look like, you know, and like Dan Brown, his office looks exactly like you would expect it to look. Um, you know, certain authors just kind of do. Um, you know, most of the authors that, that I know that are working in, you know, as a career author, you know, they, they tend to have this. And Joanna Penn talks about it all the time, multiple revenue streams. Um, you know, there may be a public face of one of your, your revenue streams, which, you know, in, in most cases, I think is the name that you, you slap on your novels. Uh, but many authors, you know, behind the scenes, they're doing, you know, five, 10 other different things. And it all comes together. You know, like in my world, we've talked about the real estate stuff, you know, it's got nothing to do with writing, but it was financed by the writing, you know, so like they all kind of play hand in hand. Um, you know, I still do the, occasional ghostwriting project if it makes sense and my name doesn't appear on any of that stuff um, and I know a lot of other authors that, that do that too you know writing memoirs and things and you know if, if it helps you float the ship you know keep keeps your you know keeps everything running so you can pound out novel after novel you know I, I think it's the right thing to do because you know every book you put out there with your name on it it raises the boat a little bit and raises your visibility and you know sooner or later you may or may not have to do these other projects uh, but
2: it is nice to have your revenue
1: coming in from multiple places so you're not dependent on one
2: yeah, I, I have a I have sort of a Clive Barker story. I, I was supposed to be in his office uh, about, I don't know, was it six or seven years ago? Uh, I, I like to say I did a collaboration with Clive Barker and Nine Inch Nails and technically I kind of did. Uh, I, I, sp- I spent years emailing Clive Barker's people to get permission to adapt one of his short stories into like a multimedia thing where I did video, video editing and then I used Nine Inch Nails music from, from the first two ghost records, which was in um, Creative Commons for non-commercial use. So I used Nine Inch Nails music, Clive Barker short story, and I did the narration and the video editing. And just kind of did it, you know, as a fun piece. And I was talking to his people for for several years throughout the process. And when it was done, I had like a hundred uh, DVDs, like limited edition DVDs, made up, and I gave them out to my list as like little keepsakes. And I had one for for Clive Barker, and I was going to be in California. And I think he lives in Beverly Hills. And uh, like two days before uh, my contact, there, I was like, oh, sorry, the schedule changed, and. And I was bummed, but I, like, I think I understand a whole lot better now that like, th- people at that level are just pulled in so many different directions that you can't count on that meeting unless you're, you're sitting in it. So I, I, th- I like to think I was this close to being in Clive Barker's office, but it might have been a whole lot, lot bigger than that. I don't know.
3: Did you get the media to him? I did. did. Yeah, yeah. I dropped
2: it off at his place. So, you know, I'm assuming he, you know, he he got to see it. Uh, It was a a lot of fun. It it took a long time and there was no payoff. Like there was no financial gain, but um, it was an incredible experience. And I think I still have it online somewhere. I'll throw a link in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. Yeah. Well,
1: a lot of people don't read him, and you know, I, I really think they should because, like, he's one of those names that you know people just think horror, like super scary. I'm not going to touch it. Like, they just they're afraid to actually open the books. Um, but like, books of blood, you know, which again is a scary title, are some of the best short stories I've ever read. Um, you know, horror or not, like they are just the, the writing is just it's beautiful. You know, in a lot of ways and and frightening. But like, he just he ticks so many different boxes with his writing. He's he's one of the most talented people I think in the industry. Um. The F word, he brought this up. Do you do you guys use the F word at all? Like do you swear or your characters swear? Do you, you or do you purposely keep
2: that out of the books? Book dependent for me. Yeah.
3: Yeah, a bit book dependent. I do. And then I'll usually cut back because I'm like, wow, that's a lot of F words. I don't know if <laughs> if that's just like my inner teenager from back in the day coming out and <laughs> like it just spills out in the page. Like I don't use that many F words in real life. But yeah, I don't mind using them. But I know some people do get pretty like upset if there's a lot of cussing in their fiction so
2: it is kind of a line right i mean it's kind of a line once like once you cross it there's a certain reader who will never pick up another one of your books yeah, yeah, you know, like Jeffrey
1: Deaver. As far as I know, he's never had a character used a, a swear word in one of his books, and like I honestly never noticed that until I think I heard him talk about it in an interview. Um, you know, so I've read you know a million of his books, and I've just I've it never picked up on on that fact. Um, when I first started writing with Patterson, I like in our, our first conversation, he's like, "Avoid the F word," <laughs> and we we still used it. You know, like there's there's always too many of them, and and a lot of my bad reviews, like when I go through it, I click on the one star reviews, like it's because of language. Um, but you know, and. In my world, I'm writing serial killer thrillers and, and cops swear, you know, they yeah. swear a lot. Then um, they're usually pretty, pretty nasty as far as language goes. So like, I just, I feel like it, it's character dependent, um, but it's just, it, I think everybody definitely needs to look at it. And Jay, like you had mentioned for some titles, you don't, um, and I know you're writing more along the mystery line, I think right now. Right. And like, in that world, you really don't like you yeah. purposely stay away from it because um, it's, you know, one, one level away from cozies. Um, yeah. So he brought that up. Um, the other thing that he mentioned, he said, do you feel like you're, or I wrote this down. Do you feel like you're in charge when you're writing or are the characters in the driver's seat? Like he, he said that he is. And like in my world, like it's the characters, you know, like in a lot of ways, like I've, I can try to steer the ship in a certain direction and force them to go a certain way. But then, you know, the next sentence that comes out of me will be the character doing something, trying to take it in another direction. And I know that may sound weird to anybody who doesn't write. Um, but when I fight that, the, the writing sucks. You know, if, if I let it happen, if I follow the character... And you know that that's when it's good. And like honestly, that's where I see characters with different personalities, you know, different different traits and stuff all starting to come out.
2: Yeah, you know, for me, I I, I you know thought about that as we were talking about it, and then again as I as I listened to this episode preparing for for our talk today, and I think for me what, what there there are certain types of authors who say that to non authors to give them the sense that it's like to impress them. Right. Like there's almost something magical about it. like, Oh, the characters talk to me. And like, I, I know, like, I know what they mean, but I, I just think there are some people who use that as like cocktail party banter to like have other people go, Oh my gosh, that must be amazing to be a writer and have characters talk to you. It's not quite like that, you know, but like, I think there are, there are people who like to, to present that way. I don't know.
3: Yeah. I think it's more like of a, a consistency thing. Cause it's like, you know, you're like, oh, I want I want the character to do this for the plot. And, the, and then you're like, uh, that's not consistent with their character, though. That's something they wouldn't do. So you kind of have to revamp and rework it sometimes. But yeah, I guess you could be like it's a character talking to me because it's like, oh, they're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. And you're like, OK, what well, is that really a character talking to you? I don't know. But I'm also a pretty severe outliner, so it might be different if you're not.
1: I, I honestly think that's where it comes from because you you plot out the story, you know, and if whether you're creating an outline or not, like you've got a general idea of where it's going to go. But that's basically you as the author dictating where it's going to go. And I think once you actually start the writing process, that's you know, for a lot of us, that's where our characters really come together and become real people. And once they become real people, you know, they, that that you know, they have opinions. They've got they do things in certain ways, and those those things may be different from you as the author or you know what you had originally expected from that character. Um, and I think that's why like you know. lot of ways you do need to follow that and in my world anyway it tends to work out better when i when i do so but it's it's cool to be cognizant of it
2: yeah for sure it was uh it was just such a blast to talk to tom and uh i I know we we haven't talked about it in the wrap-up but he has one of the the most fitting uh former jobs of any horror writer i've ever heard of so uh yeah fascinating guy really interesting and uh, and great writer so definitely definitely check out his stuff so jd who do we got up next week Uh, Next week, we've got
1: Claire Douglas coming on. She's the author of of numerous thrillers. Her latest is called The Couple at Number Nine. It hit number one on Amazon, uh, number three in the Sunday Times. Um, Her next book is called The Girls Who
2: Disappeared and releases in January. So she's going to be on to talk about that. Excellent. Looking forward to it. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening
0: to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at
3: writersincpodcast.com.